Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. But Lord, just like we have an enemy of our soul, we also have a lover of our soul. But just like there's a person who wants to see us empty and hurt and dead, there's a person who wants to see us alive and filled with joy having experienced forgiveness and hope. And Lord, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that's extended to us in the person of Jesus. And again, Father, as we look at this particular passage of Scripture, we pray that we would do the difficult task of examining our own hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 18, it says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me, him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter, therefore, motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he had said this to him. For some thought because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. You know, in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6, there's a very famous scripture that is a prophecy. It says, and one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Then he will answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. I've chosen to call this morning's message wounds in the house of my friends because that's what we're going to be talking about. The difficult subject of hypocrisy and betrayal. In John chapter 13, Jesus has been giving us lessons, lessons in humility, lessons in holiness, 
And now he's going to talk about the very difficult problem of hypocrisy and betrayal. And it began in verse 18 and it will go all the way to verse 38. John, remember, is writing about these events some 60 years after they have already occurred. But it was still, if you can imagine, a source of suffering, the salt of Judas' betrayal still stung after all those years. And if you've ever experienced betrayal, you know exactly what I mean. It lasts and lasts. No one suspected Judas. The only people who knew were Jesus and Judas But remember, the traitor was expected by Jesus. And Jesus points to the scriptures as proof. In this passage, what we discover, we'll see the traitor is expected and the traitor is exposed. And then the betrayer will be expelled in verses 27 through 30. Now, I need to share something with you. A stranger can hurt you. A stranger can deceive you. A stranger can beguile you. But only someone you care deeply about can betray you. You see, the word betrayal is not one that we should use lightly. But we should use it appropriately. A stranger can't betray you. We know that there are several kinds of betrayal. There is a a public betrayal that takes place when someone who has been assigned a position of trust betrays that trust. There is personal betrayal. There is private betrayal. So, typically, you can't experience life without at least experiencing a public betrayal, a personal betrayal, a private betrayal. Typically, the relationship that most comes to mind is marriage. Remember when a marriage partner promises to love you and to honor you and to cherish you. And remember they say those words, forsaking all others, I will keep myself exclusively for you. And when they betray that oath, it provides in our culture and society reasonable grounds for divorce. In some cultures, it is grounds to kill your partner. And to kill your partner's lover. In the same year Israel was granted independent nation status, Alfred Kinsey shocked post-World War II America to report that 50% of American husbands had been unfaithful to their wives. More recent surveys revealed that the numbers have increased in men and dramatically increased among wives. Cheating spouse statistics confirm that 50 and 70% of married men between 38 and 53 million men have cheated or will cheat on their wives. One study found that two out of three of the wives, 26 to 36 million women, whose husbands were cheating had no idea that their husbands were having an affair, largely because they failed to recognize the telltale signs. According to Annette Lawson, who is the author of Adultery, published in 1989 by Basic Books, republished again, by the way, in 1996, 
She writes, quote, the various researchers arrived at a general consensus suggesting that above one quarter to one half of married women have at least one lover after they married or are given in marriage. Married men probably still stray more than married women, perhaps from 50 to 65 percent by the age of 40. According to Maggie Scarf, author of Intimate Partners, again published in 1987 and then republished again, she wrote, writes, quote, most experts do consider the educated guess that at present time some 50 to 65 percent of husbands, 45 to 55 percent of wives become extramaritally involved by the age of 40 to be a relatively sound and reasonable statistic. Conservative infidelity statistics estimate, quote, 60% of men and 40% of women will have an extramarital affair. These figures are even more significant when we consider the total number of marriages involved, since it's unlikely that all men and women having affairs happen to be married to each other. If even half of the women having affairs, or 20%, are married to men not included in the 60% having affairs, then at least one partner will have an affair approximately 80% of marriages. With this many marriages affected, it's unreasonable to think that affairs are due only to the failure and shortcomings of individual partners, of husbands and wives. There's something wrong. There's something broken. There's something fundamentally wrong. Now, when we look at verse 18, I want you to begin to understand about public, private, personal betrayal. But look at verse 18. Jesus writes, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now, like I've indicated... There are several kinds of betrayal. And the kind of betrayal that Jesus is speaking of is personal and intimate. But the consequences of this betrayal involve the destruction of a soul. Jesus told Peter earlier, remember, you are clean. Remember how he says, I need to wash your feet. And he goes, okay, wash my head, wash my hands, wash my feet. And he says, you're clean. And then he says, but not all of you are clean. And the person that he was talking about who wasn't clean was Judas. Judas was hiding a stain on his heart. And according to Jesus, remember he says, have I not chosen all of you, but one of you is a devil? And we're going to take a more intense look at Judas when we come to chapter 17. But it seems appropriate to ask the question, why did Jesus choose Judas to walk with him and the other disciples in such close contact? Those of you who are familiar with the New Testament know that it was Jesus who prayed and it was Jesus who asked his father and he stayed up all night praying and then he chose his disciples and one of those disciples that he chose was Judas. Why? 
because Judas agreed to follow him, didn't he? He followed him with his head and he followed him with his lips and he followed him with his feet, but he did not follow him with his heart. The answer to the question, why did Jesus choose Judas to walk with him? perhaps will only be known on the other side of eternity. Clearly, Jesus knew well before the creation of the heaven and the earth, before he, before God created Adam and Eve, that one of the sons of Adam would betray him. And the fact that Jesus knew about the betrayer, listen carefully, didn't cause the betrayal. The fact that Jesus knows the hearts of all men doesn't mean that Jesus is the cause of of the failure that human beings engage in, the sovereignty of God and the foreknowledge of God doesn't change the free will of human beings. It doesn't change man's responsibility to accept the consequences of the choices that they freely enter into. By the way, God knows he's going to win the game this afternoon. That doesn't mean he wants the Steelers to win. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 14, Jesus has said, For many are called, but few are chosen. Or in Colorado, Many are cold, but few are frozen. By the way, to eat bread with someone speaks of friendship. In the ancient cultures, when you sat down at the table with someone and you enter into friendship and fellowship with them, you, it speaks of friendship. And with the expression, lifted up his heel against me, when it says, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. He's making a reference to Psalm chapter 41, verse 9. Remember, Jesus, David's son, becomes a type and a picture of David. David had a very close confidant. His name was Ahithophel. And it was Ahithophel who went to David and spoke to David about the things of the realm and the issues of leadership and the issues of judgment. But Ahithophel had children and his children had children. And you know who was one of his grandchildren? Bathsheba. Yeah, everybody goes, Some of you are grandparents, and you know that if someone did to your grandchild what David did to, to his grandchild, you're understandably upset. You're deeply grieved, and you're deeply wounded. We can, at at least one level, understand the betrayal of Ahithophel, but we are hard-pressed to understand the betrayal of Judas. And when it says, lifted up his heel against me, some suggest that that is a Middle Eastern expression of offense. Others will suggest that it's a picture of a horse lifting up its hoof to kick or a donkey to lift up its hoof to kick. We have an expression. You probably use it at least one time in your life. Have you ever said, I feel like I've been kicked in the stomach? It's the betrayal that comes 
when you are viscerally undone. The point here in the story is that Judas is a friend. That's the point. He's not an enemy. He's a friend. Imagine you could go back in time and you had an opportunity to interview Judas on Larry King Live or CNN or Fox News. Judas, at what point in your relationship with Jesus did the admiration turn to hatred or bitterness or anger? What was it that made you decide to betray Jesus? Well, Larry, I didn't really hate Jesus. Do you hate him? No, no, I, I don't hate him. Why'd you do it? Well, I, I considered him a, a close friend. Why'd you do it? Because there was something inside. I think the turning point might have been when that girl busted the box of ointment and 300 denarii of almost a year's worth of wages could have been given, and I shouted it out, and I even had some of the disciples join me in the outrage, and then I realized that I didn't think Jesus was who I thought he was. Some people have the wrong idea that Judas was on some sort of fatalistic track to become the betrayer of Jesus, that he had no choice. Some people actually blame God for the failure of Judas. And you know, it makes perfect sense because how often do we blame God for our own failure, our own betrayal? We refuse to own responsibility for the choices that we make and the circumstances that we face and the decisions that we face. You see, there's that heartbreak of betrayal, but also the prediction of betrayal. Look at verse 19. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. The word he is italicized in your Bibles. It doesn't appear in the Greek text. Here, we're, we're given a hint, in part, the purpose of the prophecy. Jesus wants to encourage the faithful believers. Remember what I've said, it's true, it's true. One will betray, but eleven will remain faithful, but not without sorrow, and not without setback, and not without pain. But they will remain faithful. And make no mistake about it. You would be making a tremendous mistake if you thought, I want just to go back just for a moment in time. Imagine you're there at the Last Supper and all of a sudden Jesus reveals that it is Judas who's going to betray him. What do you suppose the re response from the 11 disciples are going to be? It's going to be kind of a Sicilian response. Yeah, it's tonight you sleep with the fish. Hey, you would be making a serious error if you thought that if the rest of the disciples knew it was Judas and they were completely convinced that it was Judas, that they would have done anything other than kill him. And the reason why this becomes important, Jesus needs them to understand ahead of time. Not to be confounded or confused. They, they needed to know that Jesus didn't make 
a bad choice or have bad judgment or that he wasn't both the Lord and the Messiah, that somehow, some way, he made this gigantic mistake of allowing this person in the inner circle. And some of you might think that God made a gigantic mistake when he allowed your father to be your father or your mother to be your mother or your brother to be your brother or your sister to be your sister or that particular person who is a part of your family that he allowed this particular person to penetrate the inner sanctum of your home and your family and betray you. Well, if God's such a good God, why did He allow that to happen? And the right answer? Because God allows people in the intimacy of close contact to make choices. There are those who reject the Lord Jesus because of the hypocrisy and the betrayal of those who name the name of Jesus, those who have even committed outrageous acts in the name of Jesus or the church. But make no mistake about it. People who freely enter into choices are responsible for those choices. And no wonder Jesus says, in the text that most assuredly I say to you in verse 20 in verse 19 he says now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass you may believe that I am And in verse 20, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Once again, remember we've seen it over and over again in John's Gospel, where he says, Most assuredly, it's elsewhere translated, Verily, verily, truly, truly, by this time you know exactly what that phrase means. What does it mean? What I'm about to say to you is absolutely true. This is an idiomatic expression where Jesus is drawing attention to the fact when he says, make no mistake about it, what I'm saying to you is absolutely true. The failure of Judas, the failure and the betrayal of Judas could have sent the disciples into a tailspin of personal doubt and self-loathing. How easy of it would it have been to say, well, look, if Judas, he he seems so close, he he seems so sincere, he seems so gifted. If someone so close, so sincere, so gifted can betray Jesus, how can I be sure that I won't turn my back on Jesus? Some of you have toyed with that, haven't you? If other people are capable of great betrayal, wickedness and disappointment? How can I be sure that I won't have a problem? And what Jesus does is He offers them reassurance. These are the apostles and disciples that Jesus would send out into the world. Look what He says. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Make no mistake about it. These are the people that Jesus will send into the world with a message of hope, with a message of forgiveness, with a message of redemption. These are truly the messengers of God. And after the death and after the resurrection of Jesus, they would be given the power and the authority filled with the Holy Spirit to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus knows that he is going to impart to them the great commission. He's going to send them out into the world as faithful witnesses. And they need to know that their life and their ministry isn't a joke. And sometimes people need to know that their marriage isn't a joke. I meet so many people in so much trouble. Just this last week I was talking with a young lady. Tears in her eyes and she says, my father has been divorced and married five times. My mother has been divorced and married three times. A total of eight failed marriages between her two parents and she wonders if she can ever get married because the threat of disaster and failure looms over her head so large that she's terrified of entering into a relationship and a marriage. And some people feel the same way about the Lord. They're terrified. They're terrified that they're going to disappoint God. But Jesus is making it abundantly clear. The Father has sent the Son. And the Son is sending them. Have you ever needed Jesus to show up and say, Your life isn't a joke and your ministry isn't a joke and your circumstances aren't a joke. I'm I'm with you. When you prayed to receive Christ, it wasn't a big, fat, stinking joke. It was real. The transaction was real. The forgiveness was real. The hope was real. The circumstances of the transformation that took place inside of your heart, it was real. But for Judas, it was not real. And that's why we should be careful how we treat God's faithful servants. When Jesus says, the Father has sent me and I am sending you, it is with the expectation that the way that you treat the Son, you are in effect treating the Father. And the way you treat the people that the Son has sent, you are treating the Lord Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, Paul writes and he says, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly and love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. The true minister of God is to be esteemed not because of who he is, not because 
of anything other than for the work's sake. Not because of that man or that woman, but because of the gospel that he or she carries. Because the Lord God Almighty has sent them to represent him. And the chance is given to turn back. Look again in verse 21. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now the cat's out of the bag. I need to remind you of something. It is the Last Supper. They are in the upper room. Jesus is at the head of the table. And remember, the seating arrangement goes from left to right. And remember, they're not sitting at a table with chairs. They're reclining. And as as their head is in the front and their feet are in the back, they would have leaned on their left hand. And as they lean on their left hand, then there's somebody in front. And the person who is in front of Jesus, leaning on the chest or the breast of Jesus, is John the Apostle who wrote this gospel. And you know who's behind him? Do you know whose head is resting on the bosom of Judas? It's Jesus. Jesus' head is pressed in his bosom. Jesus has his ear on the heart of Judas. Have you ever sat down with someone and you placed your head on their chest and you could hear their heartbeat? Jesus, his head comes off and on to that place and that position of honor and respect. And as he has his ear on Jesus's as he has his ear on Judas's chest, he lifts his head and he says to the rest of the disciples, one of you will betray me. Judas must have gone, thank God he's not on my chest anymore. And again, he was troubled in spirit. By the way, remember that expression is unique in the Gospel of John. We saw it earlier in John chapter 11, verse 33. We'll, we'll see it again in John chapter uh, 12 here. In the, but it's, it's always in the context of death. In other words, when Jesus says that he is troubled in his spirit... Earlier, it had also taken place in John chapter 11 at the, the death of Lazarus. And here, at, at, at the impending death, the mystery and majesty of John's gospel presents Jesus as both God and man. And because he is God, he knows all things. But because he is human, he experiences the depth of emotion and, and, and pain. And listen carefully to what I'm about to say. The fact that Jesus is both God and man doesn't make him immune to the emotional consequences of betrayal. This hurts. It hurts a lot. Judas had accompanied Jesus 
for three long years. Judas knew, excuse me, Jesus knew that the traitor's feet would soon take him to the religious leaders. He sees himself in the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane, the great drops of blood, the agony, the agony and the anguish, the weight and the horror, the combined onslaught of the devil and his angels, the forces of hell bearing down upon him. And he sees and feels the traitor's kiss and the traitor's payment. And he sees the traitor walking away from the temple, having thrown away the money as he approaches a tree, a rope in his hand, and he throws the rope over the top of the tree and he places his body on that rope and he hangs himself and the tree begins to bend and sway under the weight of his body as it lies there during the rest of the course of what's going to take place in his own death and resurrection and the rope is going to snap and his body is going to fall and his bloated dead carcass is going to burst and his intestines are going to run everywhere. Jesus knows each and every moment. And it isn't simply the suicide of his body that he's concerned about. It's the suicide of his soul. Again, John uses the expression... He was troubled and testified and said, and by the way, John uses that word testified more than any other gospel writer. It occurs 33 times in the gospel of John, and it only occurs three times in Matthew and Mark and Luke combined. That Jesus testifies means that Jesus speaks out loud. This isn't some quiet internal conversation. This makes it a matter of open information. We might even use the term accusation. The way a person takes the witness stand and they agree to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And as he's agreeing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and the nothing but the truth, he says, one of you is going to betray me. And now all of a sudden the buzz begins to go around the table. Because they have no idea. It was meant to arrest the attention of the disciples, to drop everything, and to consider what was being said. The moment that he says, one of you is going to betray me into the hands of my enemies to arrest me and try me and convict me and condemn me. Remember the consequences of this betrayal means that someone's going to die. And that's the worst kind of betrayal, isn't it? That's why we feel so deeply when we're betrayed in our marriage. Because we feel like something has died. Our marriage. I have the privilege of working with the FBI from time to time. And one of the principals who was associated with the investigation of Robert Hansen. Some of you may have known that story. It was popularized in a movie called Breached. And one of the special agents who was in charge of the investigation in the identification and prosecution of that particular federal agent happens to live here in the front range. And that particular agent, Robert Hansen, happens to be in a Colorado prison. 
but his betrayal was felt at the most visceral level. Because when he betrayed the Bureau, he betrayed his country. And when he betrayed his country, he betrayed the people who were working for the safety and security of our country. And when he betrayed them, he killed them. And Jesus knows. Jesus knows that this betrayal is horrific. And do you, when Jesus even says this, one of you will betray me, do you understand that this isn't just an outing of the betrayer? This is an opportunity. This is an opportunity. This is an opportunity to come clean. This is an op- Jesus in love. Remember, remember, his chest, it, his head is on this person's chest. This is an opportunity for him to say, it's me, Jesus, it's me. It, it, it was wrong. I've been following you in my head and I've been following you with my feet, but I've never followed you with my heart. There's a way wickedness, there's an emptiness, there's a gross imperfection inside of me, and I want to change. But he doesn't. It says in verse 32, Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Betrayal isn't always predictable. By the way, when it says, Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed or puzzled, it really fails to capture the enormous and catastrophic, enormous consequence of what is being said. They are astonished and speechless. And it's hard to capture the intent. It would be that kind of shocking conversation that if it ever takes place in the context of your own home where a wife or a husband says, I have been unfaithful and your heart splits in two and your stomach begins to disintegrate inside of your body and you wonder if you're going to survive and they are numb, they are astonished, they are speechless. And we have had the benefit of hearing this story so often that it seems obvious to us who the betrayer is. It's Judas! You wish you were there. Judas! Judas is the one! He's the one! But remember... What Jesus is doing. Jesus isn't trying to out him as much as he's trying to restore him and forgive him. We look on the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. We can't tell what's going on inside of people simply by listening to the words that are coming out of their mouth or the demeanor on which they present themselves. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And who can know it? And Judas is calm, cool, collected. And in verse 23, it says, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Picture the table again. Just like Jesus' ear had been pressed to the heart of Judas, John's ear is pressed to the heart of Jesus. He lifts his head. Now when he says, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom he loved. The author of the gospel refuses to insert his own name, preferring to be called the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
And in verse 24, Simon Peter therefore motioned to him, not to Jesus. He's motioning to John. Peter is motioning to John to ask who it was of who he spoke. The Greek verb is nuo. It means to nod or to signal or to gesture. And typically if we're nodding or if we're gesturing, we nod with our head and we gesture with our hands. It's universal. It's nonverbal communication. If I go, you guys pretty much know what that means, don't you? If I go like this, you pretty much know what that means. If I go, you pretty much know what that means. That's why it's difficult if you're traveling overseas and you're in India. Because uh, when I was traveling for the first time, I remember there was a lady, she was coming down the aisle, and she goes, would you like some coffee? And I said, and she goes like this. Tea? Orange juice? And see, in India, this means yes. Which throws you off. Because you want nonverbal communication to be the same all over the world. So Peter's gesturing. Communicating. As a matter of fact, that word motioned in the German language is translated wink. You guys know what that means, don't you? So we don't know what exactly the gesture is, but it's a gesture meant to communicate. And then in verse 25, it says, then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? As a matter of fact, it's even more intense than falling upon his breast, it says in the original language. It's as if he, he collapses. And it means that John moves closer, even closer to the Lord. And as he's leaning closer and closer and closer to the Lord, he whispers the question, Who is it? And apparently, in verse 26, it says, Jesus answered, It is he to whom... I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. It would seem he whispered the question and he whispered the answer and no one else was able to hear. But make no mistake about it, the dipping of the piece of bread into the, the, the sauce and then handing it to Judas Iscariot again, is not to out him, but to give him one last chance to return to friendship and fellowship because at this last supper, at this meal, you would give the tasty morsel during the Passover to a person that you wanted to honor. In the Arab culture... If you ever find yourself in the middle of a tent in Jordan or Saudi Arabia and they kill some goat and they bring a choice piece of meat to you, eat it. It's a grave insult if you don't. And he gives this choice morsel to Judas. 
hysteria. And again, it's his way of saying, there's time. This doesn't have to end this way. It doesn't have to be this way. By the way, do you remember, even as we fast forward into the circumstances of his betrayal, when Judas shows up with the religious leaders, do you remember what word Jesus uses to describe Judas? He calls him friend. And look what it says in verse 27. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. And I suspect that it doesn't mean that Satan entered Judas for the first time, but rather at that moment, at that very moment, Satan takes complete control of the heart of Judas. But make no mistake about it. It happens the moment that he completely and fully and finally closes the door to Jesus. When he closes the door to Jesus, he opens the door to Satan. Beware. Beware. Beware when you say no to Jesus. Beware when you say, not now, Jesus. No, Jesus. No, Jesus. No, no, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't want to have anything to do with the ministry. I don't want to have anything to do with the gifts and the callings that you've placed in my life. Someone might ask, well, if Judas was really a devil, then why would it be necessary for Satan to enter Judas? And I think that the answer, in part, is found in Jesus' own words when he says, I and my Father my father in me when Jesus says I and my father are one in a very real sense at that particular moment Judas and Satan became one one in purpose one in heart one in their wicked desire to undermine and derail the plan of God and Jesus says to the betrayer what you do do quickly you know, when a person is committed to betrayal, there's, when there's no turning back, when you have reached an impasse, when a person is committed to a course of betrayal, sometimes the only thing you can do is say, hurry up. Let's get it over with. Having exhausted his appeals, having exhausted every effort to reach out and have those efforts be rejected over and over and over again. Sometimes when a spouse presents the divorce papers, the best thing that you can do is just simply say what you do. Do quickly. Now make no mistake about it. I'm not suggesting. I, I want to make this clear. I don't think that Jesus is encouraging Judas to simply hurry up and get it over with. I think that there's one sense in, in which Jesus is saying, I'm ready. I'm ready. Give it your best shot. I'm willing to accept the consequences of what my Father has for me. Charles Mylander is a pastor and the author of a book called Running the Red Lights. He writes, there are at least two reasons why we are likely to see a continuing increase in the number of Christian involved 
and extramarital infidelity. One is that Christian men and women will continue to work long hours with members of the opposite sex. Such working relationships consistently have been shown to be associated with an increase in infidelity. The second reason is more speculative. After sitting through the pain of infidelity with more than 100 Christian couples, I have come to believe that Satan has found infidelity to be one of the easiest ways that he can destroy the Christian family or destroy a Christian ministry or defame the name of Jesus in our day. I believe that Satan will launch an increasing attack against the church through the temptation of infidelity, unquote. Satan has always been in the business of trying to ruin God's plan. And in verse 28 it says, But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. Do you understand what's happening? Everyone at the table heard what Jesus said, but apparently no one knew what he meant. With the possible exception of John. And certainly with the exception of Judas. And then in verse 29 it says, For some thought because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, Buy those things we need for the feast, or, or that he should give something to the poor. Again, we're left with the clear impression that the betrayal is a complete surprise. There is no clue that's given because of his demeanor. And he's in charge of the common purse. Who do you put in charge of your finances? Not the person you distrust, the person you trust. Remember, Satan was Lucifer, the anointed cherub, the, the shining one, the lovely one. By the way, the very fact that they had a purse means that Jesus and the other apostles didn't necessarily work miracles to support themselves. They had a purse with money. Jesus didn't go, hey, I'm just going to create money out of thin air. And so they are left with the impression that Judas is going out to buy provisions, either for the meal or for the poor. And having received the piece of bread, it says, he went out immediately. And look what it says. And it was night. The sun hasn't just simply set in the circumstances of the apostles and the disciples of Jesus. The sun has set in the soul of Judas. They'll only meet one more time. And that's in the Garden of Gethsemane. The friendship and the fellowship and the camaraderie between the discipleships, the disciples, gone. The friendship and the fellowship with Jesus, gone. In Luke chapter 22, verse 21, it's Luke writes, Behold, the hand of him that betrays me is with me at the table. And again, he leaves and night has fallen. You can almost feel the darkness like a cloud, like a, like a deep blanket. The last vestige of light has left his heart. 
Later, Jesus would say to Judas in Luke chapter 22, verse 53, this is your hour and the hour of darkness. Sometimes when the lights are out and the darkness descends, it feels like it's never going to be day ever again. In a disturbing interview with Ted Haggart, Larry King basically asked the disgraced pastor why his deeply held Christian convictions didn't stand as a greater barrier in Ted's unfaithfulness. You know what his answer was? He said, the more I prayed, the more I read my Bible, the more I memorized Scripture, the greater the urges became. And I'm shocked. And even as I was listening to those words, I said to myself, Gino, don't simply dismiss his statement. Listen carefully to what he's saying. Listen to what he is saying. You see, not everyone who experiences temptation abandons their deeply held convictions to satisfy a moment of lust. John wrote, they went out from us because they were not of us. Judas is perhaps the greatest lesson in all of history of what it means to have a lost opportunity. But he's also a great lesson in the danger of loving money more than eternal salvation. And he's a poster boy of spiritual betrayal. But if ever there was a story that should force each and every one of us to a moment of self-examination should be this one. Am I following Jesus with my mouth and with my feet but not with my heart? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that we would take the lesson to heart. And Lord, we know that there is unfaithfulness. And Lord, I suspect that we've experienced unfaithfulness either personally or privately, maybe even publicly. But Lord, I know that you are the God of the second and the third and the fourth and the fortieth chance. That Lord, you reach out in mercy and love. Lord, I pray as you press your ear close to the heart of the person listening to this message, Lord, I pray that theirs would be a heart that beats for you, that longs for you, that loves you. Lord, I pray that they would turn from wickedness and sin, that they would turn from deception and betrayal, and that they would embrace a life of love and hope, of forgiveness and reconciliation. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.